Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturbins. I really don't have time to go over last week's teaching because of jumping off and into everything. Man, oh man. Woo. I already have more than I can preach in five Sundays. If think thanks. Imagine that. Uh, one of two things is going to be taught next Sunday. Either, there's a, the scripture says many times in the Psalms, it says, matter of fact, there's a, a whole Psalm that has this repeatedly, give thanks to the Lord for he's good. And I want to focus on why giving thanks for his goodness is so absolutely critical to our faith. It is important. It does things you can't possibly imagine. Um, so the other sermon for next week, Okay, that's sermon number one that may happen. If that's next week, and I want to sort of get you ready for it because Paul writes two different things about giving thanks in any moment. See, because he writes uh, in Ephesians, give thanks, I think it's Ephesians, I don't want to get them backwards. Uh, he, he, gives, he writes, give thanks for all things in Ephesians. In Thessalonians, he writes, give thanks in all things. And I want to explore the possibilities of why the Holy Spirit may have inspired him to write those two different things specifically. And I'll go ahead and tell you, and you'll hear this again this much, that if he hadn't have written both of them, we would have used one to escape from the other. Here's what I mean. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, I'll give, I'll give thanks while I'm in it, but I'm sure not giving thanks for it. Now, I'm just going to leave that hanging, and we're going to resolve why it's important that if you're in something, you give thanks for it. And if you're giving thanks for something, Father, uh, um, while you're in it, there's a reason why and what happens when you do. And I've just not ever seen it before in my study and devotional time, and I can't wait to talk. So that's the next two weeks coming up. Today, I want to I wanna continue on our, our, our Think Thanks series 2021, part two. And, uh, and I've had about five different titles, but when I don't know what to do, colon, worship. When I don't know what to do, worship. I mean that. I've already, you've already seen it with, with John. I want you to turn in your Bibles, your phone, iPad, wherever, scripture will be up here, but don't just depend on that. Have stuff to make notes, write notes, have a phone ready to take some snapshots if there are some things that are, are worthy of taking away, and I believe there will be two or three today. But I'm going to ask again of the Holy Spirit, Father, don't just present the words to our ears, but write them on our heart today. We so desperately need that. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 is the story of Abraham, <clears throat> the father of faith, he is referred to, of Abraham, who was a friend of God, Scripture tells us. This is the story of Abraham and his, when he says only son, he actually had two, but this was the son of blessing. This was the one he had promised when they were old, and his name is Isaac. And the blessings of God would flow from Abraham to Isaac and Jacob and to the people of Israel through this lineage. Now, we're at 22, but let me tell you about chapter 14. Don't turn there, just listen. <clears throat> In chapter 14 is the very first time 
that we read of anyone lifting their hands to the Lord in worship. That lifted hand was a statement, was understood in the Near Eastern ancient culture to be a statement of oath and covenant. Oath and covenant meant two people would typically stand across from one another and make a covenant and say, your enemies are my enemies, your friends are my friends, my stuff is your stuff, your stuff is my stuff. That was typical ancient uh, uh, theological or historical language, really not just theological, historical language, would be Zutzeren vassal treaties, in other words, greater and lesser. In any agreement, there's always going to be one with more resources than the other, or more power, more whatever. And in this case, certainly God is all power, and he makes a covenant with Abraham. But Abraham lifted his hand at the end of a battle, and this, this sort of unrighteous king would tell him, say, hey, take all this stuff. And he goes, no, I won't take a thing, for I have pledged it to the Lord my God. And he says this, I have lifted my hand before the Lord God, possessor of heaven and earth. That word lifted is the Hebrew term that is also translated sworn, uh, oath, covenant, promise. It's the same concept we're talking about. Now that becomes a fascinating thing because in the 15th chapter, immediately following the 14th chapter, God responds to him and says, because you've done this, here's what I'm going to do. The land, as far as you can see, is going to be yours. Now, chapter 22 would be many years later. I didn't refresh myself on how many. I should have. But Isaac was not born in chapter 14. I don't believe, he doesn't come until after 15. So Isaac's not born yet. And when they went up on the mountain, people have guessed through the years, is this a little baby or a full-grown? He was probably between 25 and 30 years old. He wasn't like a child. And that makes what we're about to read in Genesis 22 even more interesting. <clears throat> but God, uh, he would say, uh, I'm going to give you a child, and then God gives him a child. But I want, I want us to remember in chapter 15 is where God says, I'm going to give you this land. Now, let, let me go ahead and give you this little secret away. If you skip ahead to Exodus chapter 6, just make note of it, don't have to go there. God had said, God had projected about Exodus 6 in Genesis 15, which was 400 years earlier. If you've been here together with Brenda and me for 20 years, you've heard this now probably 100 times. Because it gives initial foundation for the material, physical act of the uplifted hand, okay? So God, uh, in, in, in chapter 14, he says, uh, um, uh, Abraham said, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God, possessor of heaven and earth. Chapter 15, God says, about 400 years from now, here's what's going to happen. Sure enough, 413 years later, we read in Exodus chapter 6 that, in fact, Abraham is, uh, excuse me, Moses is now leading the people of Israel out of captivity of Egypt and in to take possession, there's a reason it's called the promised land, because it was a promise made to Abraham 400 years later. It was not only a land of promise, but the land that was promised. And beloved, that takes on amazing parallel. Watch this when Paul writes about the Holy Spirit being the Holy Spirit of promise. 
He's not just the Holy Spirit that was promised that suddenly came in Acts chapter 2, but he is the Holy Spirit of promise. Please hear me. You've got to get this. That's not just a tricky, cliche phrase. Mm. You see, the Holy Spirit, according to John 16, 15 and 16, he does a work of conviction. That word means to persuade, convict. Paul would write to us about condemnation. Condemnation roots our identity, and you can read all the places. Paul develops it for us. Condemnation has to do with assigning an outcome or an identity. The the word literally means that. It's the word for the sentencing part of judgment. But watch how Paul contextualizes it. He says, condemnation is the result of my flesh, failure, and sin. Now, conviction, my past, because there's a fourth thing, past, what's gone there? Read it. Conviction is a work of the spirit, possibility, promise, and future. That's an important notion. So when we know we have a Holy Spirit of promise, he's not just the Holy Spirit that was promised, because see in Acts 3 and 4, as they would stand up to explain what was going on in the upper room, that's the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came, touched everyone there, they began to speak with other tongues, and he says, this is that which was promised. But you see, the Spirit that was promised becomes in you and me the Spirit of promise. Somebody needs to say amen right there. The spirit that was promised to me is the promise of the spirit through me. Now, what's interesting is the spirit is always calling us to the future and the possibilities. I want to give you just one little snapshot that I've said before, but many of us get stuck in it in our faith. We did something stupid last week, a month ago, or a lifetime ago, and we get stuck in it. I don't believe we're supposed to ever pretend like we never did anything wrong. I think confession is how we deal with it. We come to God and say, Father, I've done this thing. And now I agree with you concerning that thing, that that thing is sinful. It takes life from me and won't give life to me. But as I come in and I agree with you, Concerning this thing, that thing that would kill me, that was a moment of possibility of condemnation, is now transformed into a possibility of promise through conviction. You see, and and I love that, and and, and I'm not overworking the Trinity. By the way, if you don't know what that word Trinity, it's a term that's not in the Bible, but it is very much a biblical concept of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I've often just had fun playing with the uniqueness of the personages of God. Because I believe we come to talk to the Holy Spirit, and those of us that are stuck in guilt and condemnation, we say to him, man, I'm thankful you live in me as the spirit of promise, but you know, that thing that I did. See, I really believe the Holy Spirit may respond back to us and say, "Uh, bro, I'm, I'm not the one that deals with that. I'm dealing with where you're going. You gotta talk to the other guy about where you've been. The other guy is Jesus Christ. You see, because the blood of the cross took care of where I've been. And then we're handed off, this is biblical language, we're handed off by the Son to the Spirit, and he says, now, we took care of all that business back there, now this one's gonna take you where you're going. So don't be surprised when you're talking to the Holy Spirit. I say this tongue in cheek, I'm not 
trying to create airtight theological encapsulation, okay? Just, just hear me. But I, I just think that's so, so amazing. Well, I'm here to tell you once again about that thing I did 35 years, three months, two days, 18 minutes ago. And I believe he says back, I don't know what you're talking about. I deal with where you're going, not where you've been. The blood of the son. So go talk to him, see if that's covered. But the bad news is we turn around to him and say, well, you know, that thing I did. And see, you got two people. Because the Bible says he forgets our sins. Cast it. God forgets? He says he does. The God who knows everything can forget. You deal with the anthropomorphism, okay? I don't struggle with it. Because I think I turn around to him and say, hey, you know, the Holy Spirit sent me to talk to you about that. And he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. Does anybody up there know what I'm talking about? And the answer resoundingly back is, no. Get on with it. Okay. That was free. That was nowhere in my notes. So just forgetting all of that. Now, turn to the person next to you watching online and say, listen, I am so glad Pastor Tom just said that because you needed that so desperately. Go ahead and tell them that, all right? Genesis 22, let's pick it up. Now remember, okay, okay, I'll, I'll tell you when I get there. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. There's so much I want to say about that. God testing, I've dealt with it in times past from the book of James in particular. We leap off from there. But can I just say this, that when God tests us, he tests us to strengthen us. The adversary tempts us to destroy us. There's a difference. A massive difference, okay? Uh, always God's emphasis on that. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. You know, I love, somebody, I want to do a sermon on, on the 10 or 12 places in people, uh, Hans, where, where God where responds, here I am. It's an amazing. God says it, significant people say it. The best thing you can say when the Holy Spirit begins to touch your heart is to turn, here I am. What, here I am. It happens at the burning bush. It happens here. It happens with Isaiah. It happens all throughout scripture. It's just amazing. Uh, we'll, get, we'll get on with this, okay? Now, he said, take now your son, your only son, who you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Wait, wait! You've now become like one of these cultic gods and human sacrifice. We live in a day today, I use three words during the prayer time that I'll stand by. When we have faced, you know, I, and I'm trying, before I say this statement, I try to recall the descriptors my parents told me of in World War II, when the world was at war. And they told me about the uncertainty and, of course, just... The uniqueness of, of, of all of that is just incredible. So I want to be, don't want to be so myopic in my own lifetime that I suppose that nobody's ever faced anything like I faced in all of life because we tend to think of life through that lens. So, but I do want to offer it with this force. I believe that we are dealing spiritually, spiritually, at a time of crisis, conflict, and complexity that we've never seen in our lives. So it, whether it's true of beyond our lifetime, it's there right now. I could... Elaborate on that, but I have in the past. I don't need to. At every turn, even more, we don't even know what right words to say. Words that were okay to say are now, you know, I have the kids reminding me. 
Well, that word doesn't mean that. Well, it has for 120 years. Well, it means something different now. Good for you. It hasn't meant that for 120 years. You guys reframed it for 120 seconds, and now I'm the idiot. Man, stop, Tom. Do not offer any more commentary on that, okay? Everything changes. Where do we go? What do we say? What, what do we say? I mean, what, how, how do, crisis, conflict, and complexity at every turn. I, I read a lengthy article. It took 40 minutes to read. It was published this past week in the Atlantic Magazine from an author that is saying, Here's why pastors are resigning at an unparalleled level. Because you walk to the pulpit and you don't know what to say anymore. And everything from politics to social concerns to theological concerns are now being just shoved right back, being taken on by social media, just whole new levels of stuff. And, and they don't know what to deal with it. And, and I reminded, I just gotta say this much, that due to good solid survey information, People, including pastors, but there was a specific survey for pastors that would bear out this data that was, or for humanity, 80% of people deal with conflict through avoidance. That statistic would be true of people in this room. I don't want to talk about them. Okay, that's their first response. Can I tell you, that is not biblical. Because the greatest single conflict of all time and space was resolved as the creator came to resolve the conflict between his creation. And the powerful condescended to the powerless and died on a cross to open the door and resolve the conflict of sin. Therein comes this principle. The degree to which we avoid addressing conflict is the degree to which we avoid the introduction of redemption. I want to say, listen to me. I, I don't, these are some things I talk about in leadership circles and not so much here, but get what I mean. Back to the example. The highest example of conflict resolution is the cross of Christ, where the Son of God said, I want to come. I want to talk about it. I want to be touched by your infirmities. This is Bible stuff. And he comes and he dies on the cross to resolve the conflict. And what comes from the cross is the possibility for humanity to be redeemed in themselves and in a right relationship back to God. So in your home, your marriages, your conversations, your jobs, go ahead and avoid conflict if you want. But entering and leaving conflict, please hear me, is never a zero quantification event. What I mean by that, you don't walk into and then away from conflict and everything's the same. It is either better or worse. It never stays the same. You can pretend that it stayed the same, but it will not. And everyone in here knows what I'm saying is true. And you know, especially if you've been married for more than 30 seconds. Amen. Yeah. Thank you. I got one. Jesus resolves it, and so he runs to the conflict and resolves it. I run to it. My wife will tell you, in our 42 years of being married, whatever's wrong, I want to fix it now. I want to talk about it now. She needs a little time. But God has healed her. <laughs> or either I've beaten her into submission on the issue. But we have found the commonplace, a common ground, and I, I love talking about that at great length. Perhaps after the first of the year, we'll do a marriage thing and talk just about resolving conflict. And what that would mean is if you register for it, I will know you have issues. And um, that's not true. That's not true. It was a joke. Okay. 
All right, where was I? I'm sure it was something important. He said, take your son, we're going to kill him. Um, anybody ever had one of those moments in life? See, this is why I want to talk about next week, the goodness of God, why it's so critical, because there is a reason why it's stamped on every human DNA, including ours, after we're born again. The inherent suspicion that he's probably not as good as I thought he was. I'm, I'm going to deal with that and unpack that once again. So Abraham doesn't mention anything here. Just, verse 3 says, so Abraham rose early in the morning. Now, I don't know. Maybe there was no more conversation, but if that was Tom, take your son, now your only son, and take him to the mountain and crucify him. I, I don't know. On some days, I'd say back, God, I've been thinking about that a long time. I'm, I'll be on my way. <clears throat> That'll come to you in a minute. Hey, son, I hope you're watching this morning. The, um, for some of you, it didn't sink in, but for some of you, it did. If God were to show up and tell you, hey, there's a particular one of your relatives I want you to kill, there's some of you here this morning that would find that, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. I've been waiting for you to give me permission for a decade. Oh, I know I'm having too much fun at your expense and with your time. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. What's up with that? He took two of his young men and with him and Isaac, his son. He split wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place which God had commanded him. On the third day, he raised his eyes and he saw Mount Moriah. And he says, uh, Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. And I and the lad, watch this statement. I and the lad will go over there. We will worship and return to you. Now, you don't know until you get to Hebrews at the end of the Bible that, that Hebrews says he did this supposing that if he had killed him, God would have raised, resurrected him and raised him back because, see, Isaac was the son of promise. God hadn't forgotten that, okay? So, uh, verse 6, Abraham took the wood and burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. How many know that's ironic? Would you please carry this wood I'm about to use to burn you with? A burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. He took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. And so the two of them walked on together. Isaac, his son, spoke to his father, Abraham, and said, my father. And his father said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Um... Anybody ever been in those moments when you're having to crucify, sacrifice your own flesh? And you're saying, uh, God, could we use somebody else besides me this time? That'll come to you too, okay? Whole other sermon. Abraham said, God will provide. The Hebrew language there, we say Jehovah Jireh, if you, you, Jehovah Yireh. That's where it comes from. We sing the song, Jehovah Jireh, you know, for eight, decades ago. My provider. Oh, we pray, and you hear believers say, man, he's Jehovah Jireh. It comes right here. Everybody needs to understand, look at me, please, that this absolute conviction declared about God's provision was in the face of crisis, conflict, and complexity. It was a statement of faith. Watch, watch, please look at me. The first act of worship that happened wasn't when he bound his son. We're going to read about in a moment. The first act of worship happened right here because God was listening. And when his son turned to him, see, God's watching the conversation, the trip, uh, the trip up the mountain, and, and the boy saying to a father, Dad, 
I, I see the wood and the fire, but I don't see a lamb. And an instantaneous conviction, he turns and says, God will provide. You see, Abraham started worshiping before he got to the place of the altar. I know God's going to provide. So the two of them walked on together. They came to the place which God had told them. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son, and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. This is a full-grown young man. He's not six or five or four. Do, do your own fact-checking and Google searching and Bible study. I, I, there's so much here that's not said that you just have to wonder about. But because it is an Old Testament picture of God the Father bringing his son for sacrifice on our behalf, we can project a lot of that back across the top of it. Amazing and fun study. Abraham stretched out his hand. He took the knife, preparing to cut his throat as they would a goat or a lamb or whatever. He took the knife. <clears throat> no, let me back up. They came to the place God had told him, verse 9, and built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac, laid him on top, on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord, by the way, uh, scholars believe that the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. It's God, okay? But that appears there. But it says, the angel of the Lord called to him from seven, heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he responds like he did to his son. There's here I am three times throughout this passage. And he, and he says, here I am. He says, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son your only son from me. Now I'm just going to finish reading this. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold behind him a ram caught in the thicket by the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered him up for a burnt sacrifice in the place of his son. How many know Isaac just got massive relief? Okay. Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided, again, which points forward to the death of Christ. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time, and he says these words, by myself I have sworn. There's a couple things I want to say to you right here, and we're going to wrap this up. As you're confronting, I want to repeat the first thing I said. As you're confronting crisis, conflict, and complexity that can't be resolved in your mind, there's an initial posture you must take in order to get to the other side. And it's to say what Abraham is. God, I don't know where you're taking me. I don't understand this issue. I don't know where you are in this moment. I just don't, un but I'm gonna worship. I'm gonna worship. I don't know what's on the other side of this, but I'm gonna worship. We can't, we can't miss that. I have said in the past, and I'm gonna say it again, when we worship, when God says, now I know, watch this. Uh, Hannah, this will be that first quote I sent you. When God says, now I know, we know, of course, in fact, that God doesn't learn anything. Why is this language here? I, I don't know of a better way to say it. There's this long 20-syllable word I've already mentioned once in just joking, anthropomorphic. And it means using human or material um, images, metaphors to describe things that can't be described. 
See, for instance, when God says, I'll cover you with my wings, there's no misgivings that God, we might get to heaven and discover he's a chicken. Everybody get that? So we we understand. When he says, I I will chase you down with mercy. Uh, Those are all human ideas. How many know God doesn't have to run to catch up with us because literally he's timeless, spaceless, and he's already where we're going before we get there. But he says it that way. I'm, I'm going to chase you down. Because why? He's got to communicate in our terms. When in fact we know the reality is, he didn't have to chase. By the time we get where we're going, running as fast and hard as we can. God's standing there and said, man, I've been waiting for you to get here for a while. It, another sermon there. Boy, these are all good sermons. I'm just driving right by. Behold, Father, what manner of discipline I'm, I'm exhibiting on this day. Now I know, okay, I guess we've lost stuff again. Okay, we have the yellow light. We have a little three light, like traffic light back there. Red means it's gone to the abyss. Yellow means the computer may work in a moment, have faith. Green means God's in the house, we're ready to rock. Okay, right now, I don't know what I see back there. I see no light at all. That means everything's crashed once again. That's okay. We can get through this. Listen to these words. You may just have to go old school and write them down. Isn't that tragic? When we worship, God joins us in the exploration of our, my soul. Worship is an invitation for God to join me in the exploration of my soul. Worship will present me with occasions where, man, Lord, as I've centered my worth in you, worth-ship, I have come. Here it is. When I worship, you need to take a picture of that. When I worship, God joins me in the exploration of my soul. That's only half the equation. But when he joins me in the exploration of my soul, in other words, he stands with us. And as we're discovering things about me, God shows up and says, isn't this fun what we just discovered? When he says to Abraham, now I know. He didn't learn it at that moment. Abraham needed to learn it and know it for everything that would lie ahead of him. But there's another half to this equation. Because he immediately responds, you are Jehovah Yireh. The God who always provides and is ready to provide. Why is that important? Because this wasn't the last occasion with crisis, conflict, or complexity that Abraham or the people of God would faith. So a father of faith establishes this icon of worship at the beginning of everyone who would ever follow. That as I join in coming up to confront one more time crisis that I didn't invite, conflict that I want to run from, and complexity I cannot possibly understand. Lord, I'm going to worship because here's what I learned from the Father of faith. You're the God that has a provision on the other side that I can't yet see. But I, we have history together, and so I'm going to worship. <clears throat> the other half of that is when he says, you are the God who provides. God not only joins us in the exploration of my soul, but in the disclosure of his heart. Please hear me. You have that next one, Hannah. The, um, when I worship, God invites me to discover his heart. Not just the exploration of my soul, but the disclosure of his heart. There will never be a moment in worship. 
when those two things don't happen. One cannot happen without the other. You will never know more of the heart of God until you listen to him about the soul of you. Because there's a barrier. Really, that is a whole sermon to show you why. Forgive me for moving right past it. But then he says these words. In verse 16, he says, by myself I have sworn. That's that same Hebrew word. God is saying to Abraham, back many years ago when you were standing outside that battle and you lifted your hand. Oh, by the way, watch the language. I may have cut the verses off. Uh, Because you have done this thing and not withheld your only son. If you go on past there, let me see if I included that. I didn't, and I should have gone further in that. In the verses past there, he says, now because you've done this, he goes back and repeats what he said earlier, and he said, your seed will possess this land as far as you can see. Watch. And he said, you will possess the gates of your enemies. Did you know Jesus uses that language under the new covenant? There was one gathering with the disciples where he says, Who do men say that I am? Peter speaks up at this one, and it's the one time he doesn't put his foot in his mouth. He says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, you've said well, and and I say, you're Peter. And upon this declaration, I'll build my church, watch, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, the gates of hell represent the strategies, referendums, and councils. I've taught on that at length in the past. In the ancient Near Eastern world, the gates of a city, two or three things would take place. It was the lower courts where disputes would be settled, conflicts would be resolved, military strategy would be dealt with, and civil civil referendum, quality of life. It was the lower courtroom of the city, and that's where they would meet to make those decisions. And God says, I want you to know that the gates of hell will not prevail. Well, you see, he's jumping off the back of this promise to the people of God through Abraham. He grabs the promise to Abraham as if to say, I want to remind you that while he went to sacrifice his son and come off the mountain, I took my son all the way up the mountain and I did sacrifice him. But I want to let you know that when I declared to Abraham, you'll possess the gates of the city, I want to tell you that hell meets in the gates, if you will, and has laid military strategy against you, has taken the right to say, we will assert the quality of life in that person's heart and life. But he, want, he says, I want you to know that not only the gates of hell will not prevail, but I'm gonna leap back to what I said about Abraham. You're gonna possess it. Please hear me. You see, the gates of hell represent hell's finest strategic efforts against your life. And I want to remind you what God does with hell's best shot. The word is called testimony. Testimony is the point at which, see, that's why in Revelation 12, it says they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. You see, my testimony brings to bear the force of the cross on a moment. There is nothing more powerful than the force of the blood of the cross. God, testimony is this. I'm going to make you say it back to me. I say make, I use that word on purpose. It's the point at which God takes hell's best shot and transforms it into heaven's highest hope through me, through me. 
look at the person next to you. You don't have to watch my lips while I'm saying it and just repeat what you hear me saying. Start with this saying, you have a testimony. Keep repeating, but even more, God's word said, you are my testimony. God said that. No, keep looking at him. Say, God said that. He did, Max. And what you need to know is that hell's best shot. You're not repeating this. Is now in heaven's, is now in heaven's hands. And it will become heaven's highest hope through you. Now, everyone look at me. See, we, we want to take all of those hell's best shots and say, and we want to do what therapists say and say, you listen, you can just forget that and put it behind you. God doesn't want you to forget it. He wants you to remember every minute of it. Why? Because for too long, it's possessed you. And he said, it's time for you to possess it. As long as it possesses you, you run from it in fear. But when I possess it, I take it and I lift it as an act of worship and say, Father, I still don't understand quite why all that happened. I live in a fallen world where stuff happens. But you are Jehovah Jireh. And I'm going to take yesterday's testimony and I'm going to launch it as today's thankful expression as I stand in front of this crisis, conflict, and complexity. The message that I have for you, we've already sung it. I just said it in a lot more words. I know that you can make it. I know that you can stand. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.